The life of love. If the Christian life is a journey, the virtue of faith is what starts us on that journey. Faith is not simply a whistle that starts a race. It is the beginning of a new way of life. The virtue of hope is what keeps us going on this journey or along this race. Hope keeps us grounded in difficult times. It keeps our eyes focused on the destination. So what about the virtue of love? Well, love is the path that we walk along during this journey. And whenever we start this journey, the path of love seems more like a few footprints in the grass rather than a full-blown path. But with each step along the Christian journey, the path of love becomes more concrete. It becomes more real. Because as we journey on, our love grows. As with all the Christian virtues, love grows. It is like a muscle that must be properly trained to grow. But unlike the other virtues, love is the ultimate destination. Heaven is a world of love, and that is where this path leads. Love is the eternal virtue. And according to scripture, love is the greatest of all virtues, the one that outshines the others. But I must make another personal confession, as I did when we were discussing the virtue of hope. I told you that hope was my favorite of the virtues, and I also told you that you're not supposed to have favorite virtues, especially if you're a pastor. But that also means that you're not supposed to have least favorite virtues either. But after all, pastors are just humans, aren't they? I hate to say it, But love might be my least favorite virtue. It's the muscle that I do not like to train at the gym. And why is that? Well, love is complicated. And I'm going to give you a few reasons why I think love is a complicated virtue. And I think you might just agree. The first reason that I struggle with love is that it's the most challenging of all the virtues to do. Jesus commanded us to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute you, and to bless those who curse you. Now, I've never conducted a poll regarding anyone's response to this commandment, but I imagine that when someone cuts you off in traffic, your first instinct is not to offer a blessing. Oh, look, honey, somebody is giving us the middle finger again. May the Lord bless and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. I would bet nobody has ever done that in this room. Or imagine an annoying coworker comes and throws you under the bus. They steal your work or turn you in for something petty. Now, you probably don't instantly go home and at the dinner table pray that the peace that passes all understanding be upon this person and their loved ones. But that is what is commanded. We're commanded to bless the person who gives us the finger in traffic. We're commanded to pray for peace and blessing on the coworker who drives us bonkers. Most of us do not love our enemies. And if we're honest with ourselves, we barely love the people that we're closest to. I mean, our friends are great, and even we love our siblings until they start talking about politics, especially when they disagree with our own opinions. And our children are adorable, and we can't live without our spouses. But if somebody leaves the cap off the toothpaste one more time, there's going to be trouble. At times, we can barely love the easy ones, not to mention the difficult ones. 
And I didn't even mention the church, which is a tricky combination of easy and difficult ones, and you don't know which is which. And what about loving God? He's usually easy to love, right? We usually struggle with humans. But it's kind of been tough to love him recently, hasn't it? We've gone through a lot in the church in the last three or four months, and we're struggling to love our Heavenly Father. So the first reason I struggle with love is that it is the most challenging virtue. But love is not just the most challenging virtue. It is actually the most dangerous because it has potential to become the worst vice. Love is the greatest virtue, but it's only when love has the proper foundation of faith and hope in a God that creates and redeems that it can truly be great. I believe our culture would agree that love is the greatest of all the virtues, but I'm afraid that they would disagree about the necessary foundations of the Christian faith. Love is the glory of the Christian church, but it is not its starting point in the Christian life. The glory of a church building is usually its steeple, or perhaps the bell tower. But without the foundation, the steeple is no longer glorious. It would only be a misplaced glory. So it is with love. Apart from the foundations of faith and hope in God, it is no longer true love, but a misplaced love. The passage that was read this morning says that God is love. One of the shortest phrases in scripture, but one of the most profound. But without God as the foundation for love, C.S. Lewis argues that this sentence becomes inverted. Love is God. The steeple is separated from the foundation and planted directly in the soil. The bell tower has no need for the building, and it has nothing to support it. What will happen when the tower no longer has a proper foundation? It will collapse in the day of adversity. When love becomes God, the true God is no longer around. Augustine refers to this as disordered love. But C.S. Lewis calls this type of love something far more serious. Demonic love. Idolatry. A disredemption. Or a falling out of love. C.S. Lewis believes that when a culture believes that all you need is love, you've actually given true love a death sentence. And when that love fades away, its opposite reigns. Hatred. I don't believe our culture is altogether without hope, but societies that idolize love are in a scary place. So although love is something glorious, it can turn into something dangerous without the proper care. So I think love is difficult, I think it is dangerous, but I also think love is hard to define. Have you ever thought about how we use the word love in English? We say things like, I love my spouse, I love my kids, and I love my friends. But we don't love any of these types of people in the same way, or for the same reasons, or in the same relationship. Yet all of these types of love are good. Spouses, siblings, children, and friends. We see examples of all of these throughout Scripture. Jonathan loved his friend David. He loved his friend David so much that he gladly surrendered to him his kingdom by putting his royal robes upon his friend's shoulder. We see sibling love. Whenever uh, Simeon and Levi's sister is taken advantage of, 
their love for their sibling, these two brothers go and destroy an entire city. And the Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible that makes all of those awkward teenagers blush whenever they read its passionate love story as it recounts a story of a bride longing for her groom. So all of these are good loves, but they are all different and they're all complex. And to add further confusion to it, we say things like, I love New York City. I love pizza. I love my favorite sports team. I love my favorite TV show. But all of these loves are different. So love can be difficult to define. Love is complicated, but these complications do not diminish the virtue of love. Because love is the greatest, it is the hardest to define. Because love is the greatest virtue, it is the most dangerous when it is used incorrectly. And because love is the greatest, it is the most challenging to do. So this morning, we will first define love. What does scripture say about love? Secondly, we will see how love ought to be used correctly. And then finally, we will consider the source of love. So if we look at the definition of love, Paul gives us a picture of what love, love looks like in his letter to the first Corinthians. But Paul writes this letter not because the church at Corinth is a picture of love. They're actually the opposite. This church has all sorts of problems. Maybe you feel like you've been in a church that was you know, ruined by scandals, divisions, and disorderly conduct, but I promise you, you've never been in a church as bad as the church of Corinth. People were clinging themselves to different apostles and saying, well, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, and they had internal fighting. There was disorderly conduct. You thought me getting up at the wrong time was bad this morning. If you were at Corinth, you would see everybody trying to get up and speak at the same time. And some of their, their sins at this church were the most outrageous. Ironically, though, this church was also very gifted. They had people that could prophesy. They had the most eloquent speakers. And they had people who performed miracles. But Paul wrote to them saying, It's not about your gifts. It's not about your, your order, it is about love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us the best definition of Christian love, the love that is supposed to permeate all of these other loving relationships in our lives. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it's content and peaceful. Love is not arrogant or rude. It is humble, pleasant, and polite. Love does not insist on its own way. It is flexible. Love is not irritable or resentful. It forgives and never thinks of holding a grudge. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather covers offenses. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's the love that we're supposed to be taking at our marriage vows, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. I will love you in good times as well as the bad. Connecticut theologian Jonathan Edwards calls this type of love holy, and humble. A love of wonderful power 
that gives indescribable quietness and tranquility to the soul. Paul continues in verse 8 and says, Love never ends, thus the eternal virtue. At some point, all of the giftings we have, whether it's speaking, teaching, or even just setting up chairs, all of those will cease. But love is not only the path, it is the destination. It is the end that we are pursuing. Thus Paul closes this chapter. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. But this type of love must be used properly. And Jesus tells us how to use this love correctly, how to let this love shine in its true glory, and how to keep it from transforming into a demonic love. In Mark chapter 12, different groups of people are coming up to Jesus, and they're asking him questions, trying to catch him in a mistake. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they're asking him questions about how to pay taxes, and Jesus makes them look silly. The Sadducees come up to him and they ask him questions about marriage and the resurrection. And Jesus, again, gives a great answer and makes them shut their mouths. Well, a nearby scribe notices that Jesus is answering these questions with such wisdom that he's impressed. So he decides to ask his own question. Jesus, what commandment is the most important? Jesus responds by saying, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. Jesus summarized the entire law, not just the Ten Commandments, in these two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Ironically, these are not Jesus' original words. He was rather quoting Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament, the sixth chapter. Jesus says that love fulfills the entire law. That is why in catechesis and Christian training, love is taught with the Ten Commandments. There are many uses of the law. Uh, One of those is to show us our sin and what we need to repent of. Another use is to help order a society wisely. That's why we don't have uh, stealing. That's why we don't have murder. Another, though, is to show us how to live a life of love, how to live in right conduct. You have the Ten Commandments in your bulletin, I would invite you to read all of those with the idea of love in mind. Read the first commandment like this. If you love me, you shall have no other gods before me. If you love me, then you shall not make for yourself any idols. If you love me, then you shall not take my name in vain. Remember the Lord's Prayer. We pray that his name would be hallowed. It's our Our hope, but it's a point of love. We love his name. Or the fourth commandment. If you love me, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you love me, honor your father and mother. If you love me, you shall not murder people who are made in my image. If you love my faithfulness, you shall not commit adultery. 
If you love my generosity, you shall not steal. I am the truth. If you love me, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I own everything and decide where it goes. So if you love me, you shall not covet. The law is something good. It tells us how to love God and other people. But we are too weak to love like that. And therein lies the problem. God gave us clear instructions on how to love, but we could not do it. So we must go above the instructions to the one who gives the instructions, the source of love. Now, Jesus had a special love for all of his disciples. But there is one disciple whom Jesus loved above all of the rest, and that is John. And John tells us in his letter the source of this love, which was read earlier this morning. It says that love is from God. But love is not only from God, God is love. This is a uniquely Christian claim. Polytheistic religions like Hinduism and paganism have gods that fight with each other and are not loving beings. Unitarian gods, like the gods of Islam and Judaism, well, they have a God whose love depends on creation. Christians alone believe in a triune God who has love within himself and is independent of creation. The Christian God is a God of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is probably my favorite doctrine of the faith. Three persons in one God. The eternal Father is the person who loves. He loves the Son. And he loves the Son as a lover would love another lover. That's where he spends all of his time thinking. The Father thinks about the beloved object, which is his Son, but he's been thinking about this Son so powerfully that that Son becomes another person. But the Father has been thinking like this for eternity. So the Son has always existed. That is why we call Jesus the wisdom of God or the eternal thought of God. Jesus is the word of God, which is eternally spoken by the Father. Whenever we speak, our words fade because we are temporal beings. But the Father is eternal. And when the eternal Father speaks, His word is thus eternal. The Father loves the Son eternally, and the Son is the eternal object of the Father's love. Thus, the eternal Son is the one we call beloved. But the Son also loves in return. He loves the Father. And as an eternal being, he has loved the Father eternally. And the love between the Father and the Son is so perfect that their love is its own person, the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Holy Spirit is the eternal act of God's love. The Father loves. The Son is the, love, the beloved, and the Spirit is the love of the Father. This is the Trinity. And to help us understand the Trinity, I've given you before uh, Gregory of Nyssa's comparison of, of three flames. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa says that the Father is like the original flame on a candle. And he is the one who loves, and he loves the wisdom of himself, or he loves the word. So thus he lights another candle, 
which is eternal, like himself, and that is the beloved object, the Son, or the Word, Jesus Christ. Well, these two flames have so much love for each other that their love produces a third flame, or the love of God, the Holy Spirit. Thus, they all come from the same flame, but they are all distinct. Now I want you to imagine with me that these are not mere flames on a candle, but the brightest, hottest stars in heaven, brighter than the earthly sun we see every day. The first flame is a sun, S-U-N, who loves eternally. And that eternal love begets a second sun, S-U-N, the beloved. And those three love each other so much that proceeding from them is the third S-U-N, love. These are not three distinct sons, but three sons together is one. Not merely a son of power, warmth, and light, but of love. As our earthly sun sends off these solar flares, bursting of heat, light, and energy, picture our God as this triune sun sending off solar flares as well. Imagine this triune God of love sending off a solar flare to create all things and to make them lovely. Imagine this triune God of love sending off another solar flare at the incarnation when the beloved became human. Imagine this triune God of love sending off another solar flare at Pentecost when he formed a people of love. And at each of our conversions to Christ, the love of God comes into our hearts like a solar flare, and that is God giving us the Holy Spirit. Thus, we are not merely commanded to love. To love is not simply our duty. It is our new ontology. It is our new life and our new way of being. 1 John tells us that this is the reason Christ came. God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him and his spirit of love. Christ is the only true source of love. But he's not only the source, he is also the example of love. For our sake, he was made human. For our sins, he died. And for our lives, he reigns. Christ is the life of love itself. And as we love one another... 1 John tells us that God's love is perfected in us. This does not mean that God's love has any deficiencies that need to be perfected. Rather, it means God's love has a purpose that will be completed in our lives. And this is the purpose of the church, to shine like the triune sun, to be a city in a dark world, to shine the light of love, the light of hope, and the light of faith. To be a mysterious sign for what the world really longs for and desperately needs. True community, true friendship, true family, and true love. The church is a mysterious community, but it's the communion of Christ. A communion of friendship. For Christ no longer calls his disciples servants. He calls us his friends. He is a better version of Jonathan, who gladly takes off his royal robe 
and places it upon our shoulders. The church is also a communion of sibling love, for we are like Dinah, the defiled sister, but Christ is our big brother, who comes and avenges our foes and has made us co-heirs with him. And the church is a community of perfect love. Christ is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. And as the groom thinks of his bride, and as he longs for his wedding day, he is filled with love. So Christ longs for his bride, and he longs for you. When Christ sees his church, he is satisfied with his love. He has a love that is content. He loves us with that holy love. A love of wonderful power that gives indescribable quietness and tranquility to the soul. Christ gives us these two commandments, to love God and to love humanity. But he is really calling us to love himself because Christ is both divine and human. This is the scandalous doctrine of the incarnation. Upon meditation of this doctrine, St. Athanasius from Egypt said, the doctrine of the incarnation means that God became human so humans could become gods. I know this is a bold statement if you're not familiar with it, but think of the prophet Daniel who says that one day the righteous will shine like the stars of heaven. I think we will be shining like fire and with heat, but I think we will be shining with that triune love of God. This is the gospel that changes everything. God's love perfected in us. So remember this gospel. When you go down to the coffee fellowship or the ice cream party outside, remember that you are not talking to mere mortals. You will be talking with partakers of the divine image. So go and introduce yourself to someone new. Talk to somebody that seems a little bit strange. Talk to everyone. And don't simply see them as they appear. See Christ, the hope of glory living inside of them. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. See the body of Christ for what it is, an extension of Christ himself. In RBC, let me encourage you to keep enduring in love, even though we are in difficult seasons that seem to continue and prolong. For as we endure, it is not only our faith and hope that will increase, our love for Christ will increase, and our love for each other will increase. My love for you has grown during this time, and I'm sure your love for me and for one another has grown, and it will only continue to grow because that is the path we walk on as Christians. And when you leave here today, go forth and love the world like Christ loves the world. Not to be like the world, but so that the world may join you in your divine life of faith, hope, and love. For by these virtues, faith, hope, and love, we live the life of Christ. So let us raise the glory of the church together upon the firm foundation. And that glory is the eternal love. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are perfect love and that you invite us to be with you, not because we are perfect, but because you are. We pray, Lord God, that your spirit would work in us 
and that you would make uh, your love perfected in us. We pray that you would bless us as we go forth to love and serve you. In the name of Christ, amen.